Part 1, Section 1 of My Mortal Enemy by Willa Cather. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amy Dunkelberger. My Mortal Enemy by Willa Cather. Part 1, Section 1. I first met Myra Henshaw when I was fifteen, but I had known about her ever since I could remember anything at all. She and her runaway marriage were the theme of the most interesting, indeed the only interesting, stories that were told in our family, on holidays or at family dinners. My mother and aunt still heard from Myra Driscoll, as they called her, and Aunt Lydia occasionally went to New York to visit her. She had been the brilliant and attractive figure among the friends of their girlhood, and her life had been as exciting and varied as ours was monotonous. Though she had grown up in our town, Parthia, in southern Illinois, Myra Henshaw never, after her elopement, came back but once. It was in the year when I was finishing high school, and she must then have been a woman of forty-five. She came in the early autumn with brief notice by telegraph. Her husband, who had a position in the New York offices of an eastern railroad, was coming west on business, and they were going to stop over for two days in Parthia. He was to stay at the Parthian, as our new hotel was called, and Mrs. Henshaw would stay with Aunt Lydia. I was a favorite with my Aunt Lydia. She had three big sons, but no daughter and she thought my mother scarcely appreciated me. She was always, therefore, giving me what she called advantages on the side. My mother and sister were asked to dinner at Aunt Lydia's on the night of the Henshaw's arrival, but she had whispered to me, I want you to come in early, an hour or so before the others, and get acquainted with Myra. That evening I slipped quietly in at my aunt's front door, and while I was taking off my wraps in the hall, I could see at the far end of the parlor a short, plump woman in a black velvet dress, seated upon the sofa and softly playing on Cousin Bert's guitar. She must have heard me, and glancing up she saw my reflection in a mirror. She put down the guitar, rose, and stood to await my approach. She stood markedly and pointedly still, with her shoulders back and her head lifted, as if to remind me that it was my business to get to her as quickly as possible and present myself as best I could. I was not accustomed to formality of any sort, but by her attitude she succeeded in conveying this idea to me. I hastened across the room with so much bewilderment and concern in my face that she gave a short commiserating laugh as she held out to me her plump, charming little hand. Certainly this must be Lydia's dear Nellie, of whom I've heard so much. And you must be fifteen now, by my mournful arithmetic, am I right? What a beautiful voice, bright and gay and carelessly kind. But she continued to hold her head up haughtily. She always did this on meeting people, partly, I think, because she was beginning to have a double chin and was sensitive about it. Her deep-set, flashing gray eyes seemed to be taking me in altogether, estimating me. For all that she was no taller than I, I felt quite overpowered by her. And stupid, 
hopelessly clumsy and stupid. Her black hair was done high on her head, a la pompadour, and there were curious zigzag curly streaks of glistening white in it, which made it look like the fleece of a Persian goat or some animal that bore silky fur. I could not meet the playful curiosity of her eyes at all, so I fastened my gaze upon a necklace of carved amethyst she wore inside the square-cut neck of her dress. I suppose I stared, for she said suddenly, Does this necklace annoy you? I'll take it off if it does. I was utterly speechless. I could feel my cheeks burning. Seeing that she had hurt me, she was sorry, threw her arm impulsively about me, drew me into the corner of the sofa and sat down beside me. Oh, we'll get used to each other. You see, I prod you because I'm certain that Lydia and your mother have spoiled you a little. You've been overpraised to me. It's all very well to be clever, my dear, but you mustn't be solemn about it. Nothing is more tiresome. Now, let us get acquainted. Tell me about the things you like best. That's the shortcut to friendship. What do you like best in Parthia, the old Driscoll place? I knew it. By the time her husband came in, I had begun to think she was going to like me. I wanted her to, but I felt I didn't have half a chance with her. Her charming, fluent voice, her clear, light enunciation bewildered me, and I was never sure whether she was making fun of me or of the thing we were talking about. Her sarcasm was so quick, so fine at the point. It was like being touched by a metal so cold that one doesn't know whether one is burned or chilled. I was fascinated but very ill at ease, and I was glad when Oswald Henshaw arrived from the hotel. He came into the room without taking off his overcoat and went directly up to his wife, who rose and kissed him. Again, I was some time in catching up with the situation. I wondered for a moment whether they might have come down from Chicago on different trains, for she was clearly glad to see him, glad not merely that he was safe and had got round on time, but because his presence gave her lively personal pleasure. I was not accustomed to that kind of feeling in people long married. Mr. Henshaw was less perplexing than his wife, and he looked more as I had expected him to look. The prominent bones of his face gave him a rather military air. A broad, rugged forehead, high cheekbones, a high nose slightly arched. His eyes, however, were dark and soft, curious in shape, exactly like half-moons, and he wore a limp, drooping mustache like an Englishman. There was something about him that suggested personal bravery, magnanimity, and a fine, generous way of doing things. "'I am late,' he explained, because I had some difficulty in dressing. I couldn't find my things. His wife looked concerned for a moment, and then began to laugh softly. "'Poor Oswald! You are looking for your new dress shirts that bulge in front. Well, you needn't. I gave them to the janitor's son.' "'The janitor's son?' "'Yes, to Willie Bunch, at home. He's probably wearing one to an Iroquois ball tonight, and that's the right place for it.' Mr. Henshaw passed his hand quickly over his smooth iron-gray hair. You gave away my six new shirts? 
Be sure I did. You shan't wear shirts that give you a bosom, not if we go to the poorhouse. You know I can't bear you in ill-fitting things. Oswald looked at her with amusement, incredulity, and bitterness. He turned away from us with a shrug and pulled up a chair. Well, all I can say is, what a windfall for Willie. That's the way to look at it, said his wife teasingly. And now try to talk about something that might conceivably interest Lydia's niece. I promised Liddy to make a salad dressing. I was left alone with Mr. Henshaw. He had a pleasant way of giving his whole attention to a young person. He drew one out better than his wife had done, because he did not frighten one so much. I liked to watch his face with its outstanding bones and languid, friendly eyes, that perplexing combination of something hard and something soft. Soon my mother and uncle and my boy cousins arrived. When the party was complete, I could watch and enjoy the visitors without having to think of what I was going to say next. The dinner was much gayer than family parties usually are. Mrs. Henshaw seemed to remember all the old stories and the old jokes that had been asleep for twenty years. "'How good it is!' my mother exclaimed. "'Do hear Myra laugh again!' Yes, it was good. It was sometimes terrible, too, as I was to find out later. She had an angry laugh, for instance, that I still shivered to remember. Any stupidity made Myra laugh. I was destined to hear that one very often. Untoward circumstances, accidents, even disasters provoked her mirth. And it was always mirth, not hysteria. There was a spark of zest and wild humor in it. End of Part 1, Section 1